open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to be finishing up this chapter this morning. I want to start by talking about washing machines. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Washing machines. Specifically what I call, and I think I've shared this with you, although it's probably been a while, but I I call it the washing machine principle. Uh, It was something that I came up with when I was working on my master's thesis based on some studying that I was doing. It's not ground shaking, uh, but it just helped me to summarize some things that I was working on in terms of culture and Christianity, and specifically with the idea of what is normal. I want you to hold on to that thought. What is normal? The washing machine principle helps to understand how our definition of normal can change and how potent, how powerful that is. Uh, Prior to about 1945, washing machines were, for the most part, a luxury. They were reserved for the wealthiest of the people or for commercial systems. There were some home uh, machines available, but not very many and few could afford them. After World War II, a lot of things changed in America in general. And and the washing machine just helps give a glimpse. Certainly not the most important change. It's just a glimpse, okay? The men returned home from war, began new families. The number of new families was, was one of the largest that it had ever been in the history of the United States. There was a sharp rise, correspondingly, in single family home ownership. People wanted to come home. Houses were being very uh, built extremely quickly and often very cheaply so that these young families could afford them. There was also an economic boom in the United States following World War II. The economies of many of uh, the leading nations of the world had been decimated by the war going on overseas, whereas the U.S. economy had ramped up to meet the production that was necessary for the war, and it was able to continue because there wasn't, apart from Pearl Harbor, there wasn't fighting over here. Along with that, or rather because of that, a lot of these young families, now in their own home, had a bit more income than some other generations before them. Shows then, like Leave it to Beaver, Ozzy, and Harriet, portrayed what the typical family or the American family ideal was. And so weekly, nightly, families were barraged by this picture of this is what we are to be like, and And as consumers, advertisers looked at this and said, hey, there's a market here. Let's give June Cleaver a nice new washing machine. Stove, refrigerator, car, whatever it was. And so, these families, wanting to make something of themselves, settle down, build their family, own their home with a little bit of extra income and this economic boom that was ripe for this time in our history saw I could have a washing machine. Could have never have afforded that growing up in the depression, but now I can. Families went out and bought washing machines. What was a luxury item became normal. It was expected that families and homes would have a washing machine. 
Now, let me just give a little bit of a disclaimer before I go on here, because some might be thinking, oh, he's against all technology. All right, I've got a smartphone up here. I'm preaching out of a computer. I've got a really cool computer-controlled guitar amp over here. I'm not against technology, okay? I'm a little bit of a technology nerd. But what I am saying is that we have to be careful And we need to see how these things impact us and what they tell us about ourselves. So I don't want people going home saying, man, we got to get rid of our washing machines. Okay, that's not the point. (laughs) Pastors saying they're bad. It's not, not, I, I could pick maybe some other things, but not the washing machine. All right, a little bit more history though. Now we have to bring it up to the present day. As, as time went on, things in the states changed as they do. History kept going. By the 1970s, the U.S. was facing a very different financial situation. The boomers, the, the babies that were grown when, or born when these soldiers came home and began having families, those babies grew up. Some of you are sitting here today. And, and they grew up and they, they are the single, as far as I know, oh, I hope I'm getting this right, they're, they're pretty much the single largest demographic group to ever come through the United States in, in one bulk. And so these boomers go out into the workforce and they all need to get a job approximately the same time, within four or five, six years of each other, and the workforce can't support it. There aren't enough jobs for all of them. Suddenly, jobs can start to pay less and they're not available as often. Unemployment rises. The extra expendable or disposable income that Americans had enjoyed for a long time begins to diminish. The belt begins to tighten. Now at this these things, for instance, washing machines, that they had purchased as a luxury item, as the belt was tightened economically, you would think they would start saying, you know what, we need to find a cheaper way to wash our clothes. But did they? No. Why? Because of a little word, normal. Washing machines were normal. And so now, in order to maintain that standard, what did they do? Well, there was a rise in dual income earners in the home. The women went back to work in order to support that. There was also equally a rise in the amount of consumer debt. American families began to take more debt in order to afford these things that at one time were luxuries that had now become normal. Now they had to change their lives in order to support that standard that was now normal. Now, why am I talking about this? The point really isn't about washing machines. You could take anything else and put it in its place. Take the internet, smartphones, you could go back to the wheel. I don't know. Take anything that that comes into our lives. I'm hoping nobody remembers the invention of the wheel. That would be, don't raise your hand, you'd be dating yourself just a little bit. The point is these things that are part of our world that exert pressure on us to live up to a certain standard, to think a certain way, to accept certain things, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of acting and spending our money as normal. When something becomes normal, it exerts pressure on us. It pushes us in certain directions. Now, again, the point isn't to become Amish and just run away from it all. That carries with it its own 
issues. The point is we enter into and interact with these things without even realizing it's happening. That's the problem. The world exerts pressure to redefine normal in our lives and we don't even know it's happening. Now you didn't come this morning for a socioeconomic history of the United States of America. So what does this have to do with our passage? John chapter 15 verses 18 through 27. This passage speaks about the world hating us. Hating us. And a lot of Christians might say, wait a minute, oh come on, it's not that bad. We need to understand the vast difference between what is normal to the world and what is normal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we understand how completely different these are, we will understand better how the world will see us as a threat to its definition of normal. You with me? No. Okay. That's right. I'll continue anyway. It doesn't matter. I'll just keep going. My wife will tell me later, man, we had no idea what you are talking about. It's fine. In order to interact in this situation, these competing views of normal. We have to be ready. We have to be alert. We have to be aware. And so that's what I want to do this morning is use this passage as Jesus was speaking to his followers to help them to be prepared to interact with a world that didn't understand them and saw them as enemies. So we're going to look at three ways that we must be ready in this this cosmic worldview interaction that's going on in our lives every day. And the first thing we need to do to be ready is to know where we belong. Or specifically, as Jesus is going to say, to whom we belong. Let me read for us, verses 18 through 19. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And before I read just a little bit of context, in case you haven't been with us, this is Jesus sitting with his disciples, possibly even walking with his disciples at this point. We don't know. Uh, But it's the night that he will be arrested. He will be put on the cross the next day. And he knows that this is coming. And he is preparing his disciples for what will be the hardest trial that they have ever faced. Watching their savior, their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, hung on a Roman cross in shame and put to death. And then they're going to experience this dark time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I think we can only begin to imagine the anxiety and the struggles that went through their minds during that time. Was it all for nothing? But he's also looking beyond that to when he would ascend back to heaven and they will take over the mission, the ministry of spreading the gospel in the world. And so he's helping them to be ready. And specifically in this passage, uh, if you go back to chapter 14, verse 1, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He knows things are going to get bad. So he's comforting them. Chapter 14, verse 27 Then he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And then if you flip forward to chapter 16, verse 33, he says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So 
Christ's goal in this interaction with his disciples is to comfort them and give them peace. So when we turn to our passage today, remember that. He's putting an arm around them saying, hey, it's going to be okay. You can have peace. Now let's listen. In fact, let me just read the whole of our passage today, verses 18. Uh, Let me just stop at 25. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Sounds really encouraging right now, right? They're going to hate you. Verse 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Not what I would turn to when somebody is struggling uh, as an encouraging passage, necessarily. Hey, don't worry, it'll be okay. Everybody's going to hate you. You'll be fine. But this is something I love about our Savior. And I think as followers of Christ, we need to learn. Don't sugarcoat the truth. You don't help anybody. I think for too often, we have sold a picture of following Jesus as accept Jesus and everything in your life will get better. All the problems that you're having will go away. You will be happy and wonderful for the rest of your life. And kids grow up and they learn that. And they think, this is great, I'm in. And they go off to college or they have a family and things aren't so happy and wonderful. And they say, well, that truth didn't work. Let me just throw that away and I'll try something else. Because we gave them a wrong picture of the truth. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the truth. He tells his disciples there is an ongoing conflict between the followers of Jesus and the world. The conflict is that, and and don't miss this, the world hates the followers of Jesus. Notice what he's not saying. Here's another place we get this wrong. He's not saying you should hate them. He's saying they will hate you. Be ready for it. And then he's going to talk about how to deal with it. And he starts by giving himself or using himself as an example. The disciples have seen how he interacts with other people, even people that hate him. And they will see very soon how he interacts with the people that want to put him on the cross. And he always does so with truth, but also with... They should know, simply from spending time with Jesus how much Jesus is hated by other people. And if we are followers, if they are followers of Jesus, how can we expect anything else? Sometimes I wonder when I see Christians complaining about the way the world at times, or our country at times, turns against us, or the laws don't go in our favor, and we raise up our hands, and we cry foul, and we say, wait a minute, you can't do this. And I think, but they did it to Jesus. 
Who do we think we are? To expect that the world will treat us better than our Savior would be to say that we are better than our Savior. And I guarantee that's not true. So he says, look, look at me. Now notice verse 19. He gives us two possible ways or or kind of people or things to which we could belong. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. When we love the things of this world, when we accept its definition of normal, its way of looking at the truth, of course the world will love us. They have no problem with that. But when we accept the truth of God and the gospel, which say that the world's way of accepting, defining normal is wrong, well, guess what? They are not going to like that. So he says, you can either belong to the world and it will love, or we can belong to Jesus. He says, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You see, in Christ, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, that message is called the gospel, which simply means good news. But it is the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that came to die on the cross in our place because we are wickedly, desperately lost in our sin and hopeless apart from the Son of God. That gospel is a new normal. It is a new outlook on ourselves. It is a new outlook on life and the world. It is a new acceptance of who is in charge. It's not us, it's God. And that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We do not belong to the world. We have been chosen by Christ. This is why Jesus says that right there is why the world is going to hate you. Not, or at least it shouldn't be, because we are so obnoxious as Christians that they just can't stand us. That's another part I think sometimes we get wrong. The world should hate us because we hold out and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because we're just so annoying. We need to be careful what it is that we are portraying. The gospel stands against the normal of this world. In Christ we are chosen by God to be his children. Yet this world says you are the master of your own destiny. You get to make whatever choice you want and go whatever way you want. And the gospel says, no, it's all about Christ. In Christ, we learn that we are lost and dead in our sin. Yet the world says there's nothing wrong. How dare we call anything wrong or anything sin? Really, the only sin remaining in this world is to call anything else wrong. That in itself, the world would say, is wrong. Which is very circular logic, by the way. In Christ, we are saved when Christ took our place on the cross, to do what we could never do for ourselves, to pay for our sins on the cross. The world says there is no sin. And if we have any problem, we just need to grow. We just need to try a little bit harder. We can fix ourselves. In Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, changing our attitudes, reshaping us from the inside out, changing our thoughts and actions to be in line and come in line with the holiness of God. The world hates this because our very lives then become a testimony that what they think and how they live is wrong. 
We need to be ready for this conflict. And when it comes, and Christ says it will, we need to know to whom we belong. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you do not belong to this world. This world's definition of normal is not, cannot be our definition of normal. The world hated Christ because he threatened what they accepted as normal. And as followers of Christ, we must be prepared for the exact same treatment. So what do we do in this conflict? How do we engage and live the gospel in a world that wants to hate us? We need to be ready by keeping the main thing the main thing. Right? There's a famous quote, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. As Christians, we forget this so often. We become like Labrador retrievers chasing balls that are thrown and we just have to go after them constantly. And Christ is saying, it's about me. Come back to the cross. Come back to the gospel. Jesus has stated that the disciples are going to be in conflict with the world. And when we are in conflict, we easily get distracted. We want to focus on that thing right there at that moment and fix it. When we need to keep our eyes on Christ and the gospel. And there are four things Jesus says in this passage about understanding this main issue. Look at verse 20. He says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, the context of when he said that was just a few chapters earlier in John thirteen sixteen, And I love that passage because the disciples are all gathered around and Jesus kind of puts on the clothing of a servant, gets down and washes their dirty, stinking feet. And then he gets up and he says, if I, as your teacher, your master, have done this, you should do it as well because the servant is not greater than the master. And as Christians, we say, oh, that's beautiful. Yes, we should serve. But now he applies it differently. He says, if I, as your master, have suffered and been hated and you are my servant, you must expect the same. We don't want that definition. We want to leave that part out of it. Oh, humility and service, especially when other people do it. That's wonderful. But suffering, hardship, not so much. Look at verse 21. So he starts by saying to keep the the main issue, the main thing, the main thing. He says, look at my example. Then he says in verse 21, we need to also understand that everything centers on Jesus Christ. This is the core of the conflict. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. You see that phrase? Because of my name. Friends, we will all go through hardships in this life because of our own stupidity at times. That's not what he's talking about. We will also go through hardships in this life because of the stupidity of others. That's not what he's talking about. Here he's saying there will be specifically, you can count on it, hardships that you will go through because you believe in Jesus Christ and they don't. And that will make all the difference 
in the world. He says, they will treat you this way because of my name. Now, the world is not sitting around going, hmm, Jesus. That's a weird name. I hate them. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, He's not saying because of just the, the phrase or the, the phonetics of his name. It is because of Jesus' name or in Jesus' name always means according to who Jesus is. His authority, his position. The world does not accept who Jesus is. So when we say he is Lord and Savior, the world says, uh-uh, we do not accept that. Therefore, we cannot accept you. Ultimately, what Christ is saying, and Christians, please hear this, because in the midst of a difficult situation, here is a great amount of hope. What Jesus is saying is, it's not really you that they're hating. He says, it's me. I take great comfort in that. Because I know that Jesus Christ can handle the hatred of this world. Me, not so much. I struggle with it. And I'm guessing you do too. But if I can step back, and and I always have to check my own motives. Maybe they don't like me because I really did mess up or I said something wrong. We've got to check that. We need to be careful. But if it is the gospel that is the conflict, then the hatred is not ultimately toward us, though we may experience it. It is toward Jesus Christ. There's also hope in the midst of this because Jesus says, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours as well. There were people that accepted Jesus. The disciples are evidence of this. There's evidence all over the Gospels that God at work already before the Gospel was preached, before Jesus shows up. There is hope in this world. Now look at verses 22 to 24. Because Jesus goes on to say, in order to keep the main thing the main thing, we need to understand that all of this is because of sin. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. This is a hard little passage right here. When you come to something in scripture where you see things repeated, there are a couple patterns to look for. One is kind of a a bookend pattern, and that's what we have here. There's a statement. It's a statement made about being persecuted because of sin. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. So there's that statement that brings in sin. And then you go down to the end of verse 24. They would not be guilty of sin, but they have seen and yet have hated. So we have these bookends about them being guilty of sin. And what happens in the middle? Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father as well. That's the focus of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the sin that he is talking about is a failure to accept who God is because they would not accept his son, Jesus Christ. We need to be careful what he is not saying. Jesus is not saying if he had never been born in the manger, if he hadn't gone gone out and, and witnessed and testified and done miracles, if he never went to the cross, that everybody would be okay and go to heaven. They wouldn't be guilty of any sin. That doesn't make sense in scripture whatsoever. The Old Testament is filled with references to things that they did that were sin, and that was prior to Jesus' incarnation. So that's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is a specific sin. An important sin that the people are committing. They are seeing Jesus Christ. 
They're seeing his testimony, listening to his teacher, seeing, teaching, seeing his miracles, and saying, I see it, I will not accept it. They have seen the Savior and deny who he is. And ultimately, it's because they will not accept that God is God. All sin is a failure to acknowledge and accept who God is. It's an absolute rejection of his authority and his kingship in our lives. The world's rejection of Jesus is serious. But it's also just an extension of the sin that is in their hearts. We should expect it. I'm not saying that makes it okay, but it shouldn't catch us off guard. Finally, he gives a fourth way to understand and keep the main thing the main thing. Verse 25, he basically says, none of this is new. This was foretold. It's it's all over the Old Testament, the way the other nations treated God's people. It's all over there. Here specifically, he quotes David. He says, verse 25, this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. David wrote that in two different Psalms. And you think about David, he's called a man after God's own heart. This is King David. He made some mistakes, but man, he did some wonderful things for God. And yet every step along the way, people hated him, wanted to kill him, wanted to take his crown. None of this is new. We must keep the main thing, the main thing. We need to focus on Jesus Christ. The world will choose many reasons to hate us. Different issues come up every generation. And it's important for Christians to enter into those issues biblically. I'm not saying just let it go. But we must not make those things the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. The main issue is always Jesus. We cannot get sucked into the world's definition of normal and its way of arguing about what is normal and get off track. In our conflict with the world and its conflict with us, we need to know to whom we belong. We belong to Christ. We need to focus on the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing, which is Christ. And finally, we always need to know where to go for help. Yesterday, my family was able to go to Seabreeze. It was my first time. Been here seven years. Got out of it every other time. But had to go yesterday. (laughs) Had fun. We've got some friends in town from Pennsylvania. Had a great time. But we were sitting eating dinner, and my daughter Ainsley, who's five years old, in case you don't know her, she was eating pizza, and like five-year-olds eating a mammoth piece of pizza, she had sauce all over her face. And so we said, hey, you need to wipe off your face. So she picked up the napkin, and she's trying to wipe it off. And she's not doing too well. And I looked at the napkin, and the napkin was covered with sauce. So she's trying to wipe sauce off her face with a napkin that had sauce all over it. Friends, if, as Jesus says, we are in a struggle with this world, between the world's idea of normal and this new normal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be careful where we go for help. We cannot pick up this world's napkin, which is covered with dripping globs of this world's idea of normal, to wipe off the residue of this world's thinking from our lives. We need something else. And this is where Jesus turns to. 
Look at John fifteen twenty six to 27. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. I am always shocked when in our efforts as Christians to share the gospel to this world, we so quickly and easily turn to the world's methodology. And Jesus says he is going to send this advocate. We know him as the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in the lives of all believers. And this world advocate, as we've talked about already, is is kind of a technical word that means counselor or helper, specifically someone in, in kind of a legal aspect, someone who will speak on our behalf, who will stand in our place and be an advocate for us. And Jesus says that he will send this advocate to us, to the disciples, from the Father. And he calls him, listen to this, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. We must get our truth from God. That's our new normal. That's the one that defines normal for us. We cannot run to this world for more and more truth. The Holy Spirit is not from this world. He comes to give us the very truth of God, the new normal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, he says, He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit's main function is to point us to Jesus Christ. To say, focus. Focus there. Quit getting sidetracked. And the Holy Spirit does this primarily through the word of God saying look to who Jesus is, and then bringing this to our mind, applying it to our day-to-day life, focus. And does that mean we just let go and let God? No, Jesus says, verse 27, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Now, specifically, he's talking to the disciples. This is their role. They're going to go out and spread the gospel now when Jesus leaves. But it's broader than that as well. This is still our role today to testify about Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss the implications of this. Jesus has said the world will hate his followers because of him. And then he tells his followers, go out into the world and tell them about me. Where's that going to lead? It's hard to be a Christian. And if you're here today and you're struggling in your faith, if I could, I hope this gives you hope. You're in good company. We all struggle. It's hard to follow Jesus Christ. He said it would be hard. He said that we're going to experience conflict. The truth of God conflicts with the truth that we have accepted our whole life and that the world continues to preach to us and to cram down our throats. It's hard. And even on our best days, when we're living for Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in conflict with the world and the world's ways of thinking because it is hard to follow Jesus Christ. What is normal? What's your washing machine? What are things that we've accepted as this world's way of thinking that we've never even stopped to think Why do I think that way? And then where do we go? 
Do we just get together and talk about it and share opinions? Or do we open up the scripture, the very word of God, and say, God, you teach me. Who gets to determine what is normal? This powerful force in our life, what we've accepted as normal, who gets to set that? Is it going to be our culture? Is it going to be our opinions? Or is it going to be the very word of God? Scripture reveals and defines the new normal for us. That's why we need the Word of God. It's why as a church I get up here and I open up the Word of God to you. It's why, and I can't wait for Sunday school to start again because I miss it. It's why in Sunday school we get together and we open up the Word of God. When we have small groups, they open up the Word of God. Because this is what we need. It's also why the church is so important. The church is a living, breathing, imperfect, but living and breathing demonstration of the new normal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do together. We live out the gospel in our lives. And if I may, it is the single greatest evangelistic tool that we have to be the church so that the world looks at us and goes, huh, that's different. Some of them will hate us for it. But others will say, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. So when the church changes to become like the world, we lose that. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is hard at times to hold on to faith. It is easy to want to change the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel, to make it easier to accept, less offensive to this world, less confrontational. And God, as Christians, we should not go out looking for a fight. That's not what your son is talking about here. But when we follow you, when we trust your word, when we're transformed by your gospel that changes us from the inside out, we should be ready. Because the world will not want to hear it. They will not want to accept us. And they will want to change us. And when, and as that happens, I pray that we would keep the main thing, the main thing. May our sense of what is normal be defined by Jesus Christ and not anything that this this world has to offer us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.